Brian Holt fights the rush hour traffic every day as he commutes in from his suburban Maryland home to downtown Washington, D.C. He thought after years of this commuting that he had seen it all until one morning when he saw a young woman pull in from a, or pull out from a side street right into traffic and cut off another driver. That other driver had to brake sharply and missed hitting her car by just inches. You can imagine, he was furious. Well, when the traffic got to the next red light, he jumped out of his car and stomped towards hers. Well, this young woman, a very attractive young woman, saw him coming in a rearview mirror. She opens the door, gets out, runs to him with a big smile on her face, enfolds him with her arms, plants a big passionate kiss on his lips, and then runs back and gets in her car and drives off. (laughs) The offender was startled, confused, and embarrassed because now the other cars, as he stood there in the street, started honking at him. Don't you wish that all road rage would work its way out like this, especially if you're a single guy? (laughs) Unfortunately, it doesn't, does it? Mike Conklin is a uh, writer for the Chicago Tribune, and he reports in one of his articles, from his perspective, anger is becoming in our nation epidemic. And he mentions that Dr. Emil Kokoro, a researcher and professor at the University of Chicago um, in psychiatry, um, has been studying anger for several decades. And he believes that many hotheads have something that he calls intermittent Explosive Disorder, I-E-D. And Dr. Kokoro is championing a new drug called Depakote by Abbott Labs. But in an effort to find volunteers to do clinical studies on this, he can't get anybody to come in. Evidently, people do not see their anger as a problem. Yet Dr. Kokoro says, the other day I got into my friend's car and noticed that the visor on the passenger side was gone. I asked him, what happened? And he said, don't get me started on that. My wife pulled it off. I told him, these things are not easy to pull off. He says, well, she was really angry. (laughs) Yeah, it does appear that we're becoming a nation of just angry individuals. I mean, there is road rage, there's job rage, there's grocery store rage, there's violence at youth sporting events. We get ticked off by airlines. We get ticked off by cell phones going off in theaters. We're hostile towards those who have a different political position than we do and don't even get us started about the emotions that go along with the Vikings. But as Dr. Kokoro has revealed, most of us don't even want to admit there's a problem there. This strong emotion simmers just below the surface until we hit a triggering event, and usually that triggering event is something rather mild, and then it's amazing some of the hostility that comes pouring out. And I am not immune from this. Um, Friday, I was on my way to a coffee meeting, and I came to a four-way stop, intending to turn left, but the person across from me did not wait their turn, and as I started to turn left, they cut me off, I'd be a little embarrassed to repeat some of the words under my breath that I mentioned about that driver. 
That's why we need Psalm 4 this morning. If you have your Bibles, if you have your devices, open, if you would, to Psalm 4, because it's going to speak directly to this powerful and intense emotion. David, in this psalm, openly admits the strong currents that are moving inside of his own heart. But he doesn't just admit it, he also then goes on to point us in the right direction of how we, just, how we address it. Psalm 4, he begins by mentioning how he is living in a pressure-filled environment. And he mentions to us that there are two specific things, at least when he wrote this, that are bothering him. What are they? Well, verse 1, he's feeling the pressure when life is just not fair. Look at what he writes. Psalm 4, verse 1, he says, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. You can notice emotionally, David is in distress. That word literally means to be backed into a corner. We might say David was in a position where he had no room to maneuver. He had no options in front of him. He feels bound. He feels limited by his circumstances. Well, what circumstances? Well, we're not told yet. We'll get there in a minute. But notice there's a hint of, of something going on here when he calls on the God of my righteousness. In other words, he is praying and pointing out that God is the one who upholds justice. Which strongly suggests David is under pressure because life is not being fair right now. We can relate to that, can't we? I mean, we as Americans, we, we like fair play. We don't mind being beat in competition as long as the game was not rigged. We don't, but we might, it deeply bothers us when the guilty go free, when the disadvantaged are taken advantage of, when we're accused of something we didn't do. Yeah, then we start to boil on the inside. Anger starts to come. Did you ever hear the story in Las Vegas, Nevada, of 42-year-old Lynette Spiller, who was hit by a car as she was trying to cross a street one evening? The car didn't stop. Neither did the second car that ran over her. The third car that hit her only stopped because her body got wedged underneath it. But before police could get there, bystanders combed through her purse and her backpack and took all of her credit cards and money. In this broken world, life can be so unfair. And stories like that of Lynette upset us. We get angry on the inside. And when maybe not so radical, but similar situations occur to us, the pressure that begins to build on the inside can be enormous. Now, the second thing that bothers David is not just when life is unfair, but notice in verse 2 and verse 3, it bothers him when the facts are manipulated. Verse 2, oh men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? There's the first one. On the one hand, David is dealing with those times when men twist the truth. They're turning his honor into shame. That's taking something positive and then putting a spin on it so it looks wrong. It happens in politics all the time. Each political party accuses that of each other. 
But doesn't that really hurt when that happens to us personally? It happens a lot when a strength of ours is considered to be a weakness by others. So, you're very relational, but someone accuses you of just being a people pleaser. You're a visionary, but others judge you as being ego-driven. You're detailed-oriented, but others criticize you as having an inflexible perfectionism. I mean, who likes it when our motives are questioned for a, a just act that we performed? See, when the truth about us is twisted, it adds pressure on the inside. But there's another one that David says really gets to him. Look at the last part of verse 2. How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? See, it's not just men who twist the truth, it's men who deny the truth. And we get angry, don't we, when people lie to us, when people lie about us. Why does it bother us? Because, well, like David, we don't like it when people twist the truth. We don't like people who deny the truth because we are people who are trying to hang on to the truth. And look what verse 4, I mean, verse 3 says about the truth we're trying to hang on to. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. What is the truth that, we're trying, that David's pointing to that he's trying to cling on to? And I think most of us try to cling on to. It's the way God will treat us. He has set us apart for himself. He hears us when we call. He set us apart. What does that mean? Well, that same word is, is used a number of times um, in the Old Testament, especially during the, or just prior to the Exodus. The plagues on Egypt. Exodus chapter 8 and verse 22, during the fourth plague on Egypt, Moses writes and says, The Lord is going to deal differently with the land of Goshen than he is with the rest of Israel. I mean, the rest of Egypt. And the plague did not touch them. In Exodus chapter 9 and verse 4, during the plague that kills all of the livestock, it says the Lord will make a distinction between the cattle of Israel and Egypt. And then in the last plague, in chapter 11 and verse 7, it says that the Lord's going to make a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Moses writes and says, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. How, isn't that amazing? God's power is such, he can stop a dog from even growling at somebody. That's our God. He can set apart. And so set apart is a word that means to wonderfully or graciously choose. So even when, as Psalm 4 mentions, men unfairly twist the truth or, or lie about us, God is gonna, says, I'm going to make a distinction about the way he treats us. Now, connect that promise to the fact that our God is a righteous God, and we can have confidence that he will deal fairly with us. You know, but the reality of juggling those things, the way man treats us, versus the way we hope to see God treat us, it can create a pressure-filled environment. 
Now look back at the psalm here. Because now David reveals how personally the pressure in him often spawns the powerful emotion of anger. Verse 4, be angry and do not sin. I mean, we all know what anger feels like, though we may not use that specific word. Oh, man, we have all kinds of words in the English language to describe it. It's being mad, it's fury, it's rage, it's animosity, it's indignation, it's resentment, it's wrath. It's embittered, it's annoyed, it's in a huff, it's incensed, it's infuriated, it's irritated, it's offended, it's riled, it's provoked, it's ticked off, it's cross. I mean, just because we have all of those words, it is a big deal. It's a big emotion. Yeah, the feeling is well known. But do you know where it comes from? Are you aware of the source of anger? Why do we get mad? Why why was I upset at that four-way stop on Friday? Well, our anger is this intense emotional reaction of displeasure to those things that we perceive as being wrong. So when we hear about Lynette Spiller getting killed and robbed, something inside of us says, that's just not right. When blatant racism causes people to treat others differently simply because of the color of their skin, something inside of us says, that's just not right. So anger is is connected to our sense of right and wrong. It is linked to our sense of justice. It's linked to our sense of what's fair. And by the way, God gets angry. Exodus chapter 32 and verse 10 is a classic example of it where the children of Israel, as you know, made that golden calf as an idol in direct disobedience to the second of the Ten Commandments that prohibited the making of any idols. And so when his divine absolutes, his instructions of what's right and what's wrong are violated, God gets angry. Now, look again, though, at what David says here at the very start of verse 4, in Psalm 4. Be angry and do not sin. So, what David's doing here, he's alerting us to the various shapes and shades of anger. In other words, it is, a, it is, it is possible to be appropriately angry, and it's possible for our anger to be sin. How do we know the difference? Well, remember, what's the source of our anger? Okay, it's our displeasure to that which we perceive, to what we perceive as wrong. So the key is our internal perception of what's right and wrong. So when our list of what's right and wrong matches God's list of what's right and wrong, then anger is an appropriate emotional reaction. But when we change the list, or add to the list, then our anger becomes sin. So, for example, someone lies to us or lies about us, and yet Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 25 tells us that we are not to lie to each other. So, the divine standard is to always speak the truth to one another. Okay, come back to my situation. Suppose someone cuts us off in traffic. We hit the steering wheel with our hand. We blare the horn at them. We we call them a fool inside our own car. We're angry. Okay, is that appropriate? 
What standard are we using? Are we ticked off because we think we have the right not to be inconvenienced? Don't we get mad because they got in our way and our standard is me first, everybody else can get in behind me. See, anger can be justified and anger can be sin. Depending on our motives. Has God's instructions about what's right and wrong been violated? Or has it, is it only my, my selfish desires that have been violated? Am I responding on the basis of divine principle? Or am I responding on the basis of my personal preferences? And folks, let's be honest. How often do we tend to elevate our personal preferences to divine absolute? Okay, that's too convicting. We need to move on. Anger. Wow, it is such a powerful emotion inside of us. At times it can act like a 30-foot wall of water crashing down on a beach. Or at other times it has the qualities of a slow-moving river of lava, inch by inch, just burning up everything that gets in its path. And David, David doesn't want us to fall victim to this emotion. So he finishes Psalm 4 Moving from admitting it to now addressing how we deal with it. He gives us the prescription for addressing our anger from verse, the last part of verse 4 all the way down now to, the, to verse 8. And he gives us four items. Four things to consider that when we start feeling angry, what do we do about it? Notice the last part of verse 4. David encourages to take time for personal reflection. Last part of verse 4 says, So ponder in your heart, own hearts on your beds and be silent. Ponder. Isn't it amazing how we don't tend to stop and ask the question, Man, why am I feeling this way? Maybe it's because we don't want the answer. Maybe we're scared that reflection will bring conviction. But the first step, according to David, in addressing my anger is to do some serious self-examination. What provoked my anger? Where would that come from? Have God's standards really been violated here? Or is it my, only my selfish interests that were being frustrated? Is, is it my pride is at the issue? Or is it a godly principle that's at the issue? So back to my four-way stop on Friday. I... Of course, the window was shut, so no one heard it but me and God. But I muttered some things under my breath, and, and then as I went ahead and made my left-hand turn, the Holy Spirit just kind of prompted me to say, okay, Rick, what was that about? Why did all of a sudden that just pop out of me? And so I pulled into a parking lot for just a minute and just tried to think, what was going on inside you, Rick? What, that, that, that's the reaction you would have. In that setting, ponder. Hold your finger here in, in Psalm uh, 4, but turn all the way back to the very beginning of your Bible, to Genesis chapter 4. Here's an example of, of the connectedness and why pondering is so important. And it's the story of Cain and Abel when they both brought a sacrifice to the Lord. God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but he did not accept Cain's. What, ha- what did Cain do? He got angry. The text says, very angry. Now listen to how God encourages Cain to reflect on this. Genesis chapter 4, 
Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? See, these questions are meant to get Cain to think. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Notice the close connection between anger and sin. So to pause and to think goes a long way towards helping us address this very strong emotion that, that, that occurs within us. Back to Psalm 4. Now David goes to the second um, recommendation, and that is understand the need for spiritual connection, not just the need for personal reflection, but for spiritual connection. Verse 5, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Again, offer sacrifices. The Old Testament sacrificial system was designed to help an individual as they brought a sheep, as they brought a goat into the temple uh, to connect to God. So the bringing of this animal for sacrifice was an act of worship that praised God for who he is, but then also provided forgiveness for the individual. It reminded a person There is a God in heaven. He's the center of it all, and I am not the center of it. But notice David says, offer right sacrifices. What are right sacrifices? Well, you know in the Old Testament, over and over again, God really isn't all that concerned about the physical act in worship of bringing a goat or a cow. He's after the heart. So, Psalm 51, verse 17, 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, even Romans in the New Testament, chapter 12 and verse 1, indicate that the sacrifice God wants comes from some specific heart attitudes. For example, he wants a repentant heart. He wants to see a heart committed to obedience. He wants to offer our lives back to him as an act of worship in sacrifice. Now, add what we're seeing here, the first part of verse 5 to the last part. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Okay, how does that help us with our anger? Well, what am I believing? Do I believe that God sees the unfair things that are happening in my life? Do I believe that He cares about the pressure that's building up on the inside of me? Do I believe that he will act on my behalf in the midst of all of this? See, this is trust. When we give God the right sacrifices and we keep our trust in him, then you know what happens? Are we going to still feel angry at times? Absolutely. Is sometimes those anger, that anger going to be selfish? Yes. But you know what? It will not dominate us because we are relying on him to handle in this broken world the unfair or unjust circumstances that we're having to live with. But we've got to pursue that spiritual connection. And that leads us to the third recommendation, part of David's prescription for how we address my anger, and that is we need to look to God for our satisfaction. Verse 6 and verse 7, David writes, There are many who say, who will show us some good 
Oh, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than when there grain and wine abound. Okay, there's a connection here you need to draw. When life is not fair, and we tend to get angry about it, we're angry because now life is not feeling good. And the temptation is that with this intense, powerful emotion inside of us, this anger is, now I'm going to go out and make life good for me. You're not doing it. I'm going to have to make it happen. I mean, after all, I'm an American. It's my right to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. But David, David takes us on a whole different tactic here. He encourages us instead to look to God to supply our satisfaction. To go to Him personally. You know, modern technology is is really wonderful, but it has some drawbacks. Um, I use the phone, I admit it. I I use email, I use instant messaging, I I use apps to share photos with my kids who live all across the United States. But you know what? I would never use any of that, or I would not have to use any of that if I lived right next door, because you know what? I'd rather be face-to-face with those that I love. Nothing replaces being physically with them and looking them in the eye. That's what God wants. He wants us to pursue Him and let Him supply satisfaction. And God promises that if we want it, We can have a satisfaction of this close and intimate relationship with Him. And look at verse 7. We can have a joy that's better than any material goods can offer us that He will give us. John Ortberg, in his book, Dangers, Toils, and Snares, tells this humorous account about all of this that we're just talking about. Listen to what he says. He says, when we take our children to the shrine of the golden arches, They always lust for a meal that comes with a cheap little prize, a combination christened in a moment of marketing genius, the Happy Meal. You're not just buying fries, McNuggets, and a dinosaur stamp. You're buying happiness. And their advertisements have convinced my children, John says, that they have a little McDonald's-shaped vacuum in their souls. Oh, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in the Happy Meal. So I try to buy off my kids sometimes. I tell them, oh, just order the food and I'll give you a quarter to buy a little toy on your own. But then the cry goes up, I want a Happy Meal. And then all over the restaurant, people are craning their necks to look at the tight-fisted, penny-pitching, cheapskate of a parent who would deny a child the meal of great joy. The problem with a Happy Meal is that the happy wears off and they need a new fix. No child discovers lasting happiness in just one. Oh, remember that happy meal? What great joy I found there. No, happy meals bring happiness only to McDonald's. 20 billion happy meals. That's why Ronald McDonald wears a grin. And then listen how he ends. When you get older, you don't get any smarter. Your happy meals just get more expensive. fourth thing that David points to as a way for us to begin to address this powerful emotion inside of us 
is expect God to provide protection. Look at verse 8. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. By the way, just a real quick side note here. Notice in these powerful emotions that we're dealing with on these Sundays, David seems to always go back to how he sleeps. There's a direct connection between our addressing and admitting our powerful emotions and the kind of sleep we're getting at night. Okay, that was extra, no charge for that one. But when life is unfair, we sense our vulnerabilities, don't we? We recognize how easy it is for our comfortable life to be upset and disrupted. We realize we really can't completely protect ourselves. And that can unnerve us. It probably should unnerve us. But then it ought to drive us into the arms of our God for our protection. And notice what David wrote. He says at the end, you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. God alone can be and will be our sufficiency. In fact, uh, C.S. Lewis mentioned this in a quote. He said, you know, a car is meant to run on gasoline, and it will not run properly on anything else. God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits need and were designed to burn. He's the food our spirits were designed to feed upon, and there is no other. That's why it's just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about relating to him. God cannot give us a happiness and a peace apart from himself because it's not there. There is no such thing. Having the expectation that God will provide protection keeps us from having our anger spawn worry and fear that keeps us up at night. But when he is the one that we're counting on to allow us to dwell in safety, it allows us to get a good night's sleep even when we live in a broken world where life is many times unfair. I ran into a quote by a writer for the Los Angeles Times, a guy by the name of Vince Rouse. He's not a believer. But he wrote, a, he wrote an article about a time when he was going through some incredible hardships and was blaming God for it. Listen to what he says in the article. One night I realized something significant about my anger and my disbelief. Here I am, I'm lying in bed with the empty, hostile cosmos pressing down on me and suddenly a thought popped into my head. I am angry at a God I don't even believe in. Psalm 4, take it to heart. Are you willing this morning to even admit, like David, that you get angry? Has your pressure-filled environment gotten to you? What are you doing with this powerful emotion? Let Psalm 4 guide you to do some reflection to pursue and tighten up your spiritual connection, to look for God, to provide the satisfaction that your heart so desires, and then to ask Him, oh, Lord, would you please provide my protection? In fact, why don't we just do that right now? Please pray with me.
Father, you know that I struggle with this, and I guess what that just does is prove I'm just human. That there are those times when anger just comes out of me in a surprising way, and it's like, whoa, what just happened there? And Father, unless I, like Psalm 4, encourages, admit it, address it, all that it does is erode something in my soul, and it often then does damage to those that I love that live with me. Oh, Father, may Psalm 4 be somewhere where we traffic regularly. May David's vulnerable admission about this in his own heart and then his commitment to addressing it be that which is our commitment as well. So, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters who, like me, get surprised by this powerful and intense emotion. Father, we want to be angry appropriately, but not sin. Father, that's going to probably be a lifelong journey to see you change and shape us and mold us into the image of your Son. But, Father, will you take us there? So, Father, this morning, right where we are, pray that you would meet us, right even in those places where we're angry. May Jesus Christ reveal himself to us in how we deal in this broken world with that which is so unfair. Father, may you give us the love and the grace to live in this world and to continue to love in this world. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.